All right, in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 44, as we continue to uh, look here at uh, Daniel's given uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Uh, he had a dream that absolutely terrified him, whereas the Bible says that his, slept, his sleep fled from him. And so uh, he called the wise men uh, to come and interpret the dream, but he wanted to know not just the interpretation of the dream before they even tell them the t- interpretation of the dream. He said that they wanted, he wanted to know what the dream was. They couldn't do it. So then uh, he ordered for all of them to be arrested. And so after that, after Daniel and his three friends went to be arrested, he then went before the king and asked the king to give them some time. And so they went and prayed. God gave them the interpretation of the dream. God told Daniel exactly what the dream was. And so he then went to the king and the king told uh, the, the Daniel told the king what the dream was, first of all which was his request, and then told him what that dream was. Now remember the dream was of a statue, uh, a, a giant statue. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how big the statue was, but a massive statue that obviously put great fear in the heart of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The head was made of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar in the Chaldean Empire. The arms and the chest was made out of silver, which represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the midsection, the belly, uh, was made out of bronze, which represented the Greek Empire. And the legs were made out of iron, then the, uh, which represented the Roman Empire. And the feet were mixed, uh, made out of iron, mixed with potter's clay and so when you look at that it is unsustainable and then the mentioning of the toes and you know when you look at the toes some of the toes uh, seem to have a little bit of iron in it and some of them seem to be entirely uh, of clay and so I talked a little bit about the clay last week and uh, as I talked about the clay and I talked about what those ten toes represent again you have four empires and those four empires are, are uh, world empires, at least to the known world of the day. Remember that, uh, at, that at the beginning of creation, uh, civilization wasn't that far spread out. The longer uh, humanity lives upon this earth, the more civilization began to, spread, began to spread out. And so now here we are with it spread all over the world. I believe also at the flood, you had the breaking up of the continents. Then at the Tower of Babel, you had uh, the uh, confusing of the languages, which then formed nations. And so through those nations, then they were uh, then they started spreading uh, out to the uttermost parts of the world. And so when we look at this, the four empires then come down into the two legs, which is really uh, the uh, all of the Roman Empire, but you have the Eastern Division of the Roman Empire and the Western Division of the Roman Empire. But those feet that are really kind of ridiculous feet when you begin to look at it because potter's clay does not mix with iron. You cannot mix the two together. And so uh, I talked about how the potter's clay was a representation of humanity. And so I talked about that last week. And so when we think about the potter's clay being a representation of humanity, I think it's specifically of fallen humanity as well. Reminded when Judas 
uh, betrayed Jesus. Jesus uh, Judas was given 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. And uh, then he had remorse about that. He went and gave the silver, uh, the, uh, silver back. And then he went, went and committed suicide. And so after he committed suicide, they then took that silver. They didn't take it back and put it back in the temple treasury. What they did then is they went and bought a potter's field, right? And so there it is, that uh, place where you get that potter's clay at, specifically a place where they would bury strangers. They were burying uh, bury foreigners. So again, you know, a place of disgrace, if you will, when you begin to look at that. And so, you know, we could spend a lengthy amount of time discussing that, uh, but I think the picture is that you find fallen humanity, but you also find that fallen humanity in verse 43 is in verse 43 where it says uh, right there, and, and in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, and again you ask yourself the question, how do you mix iron with clay? The two do not mix, right? The two do not blend together. Uh, and, uh, so you see the iron mixed with the clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So it is through the seed of men, right? And so we ask ourselves the question, well, what specifically does that mean, the seed of men? And so the seed of men uh, is, is basically how, you know, people are created. Man has seed, which is interesting because Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 uh, it tells us that the, the seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and the, the, uh, the seed of the, 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 the head of the serpent will then bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which is an interesting statement because woman doesn't have seed, right? It's the man that has the seed. So what is that a reference to? If you take Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all by itself, it would be an extraordinarily confusing verse, but it is an obvious reference as you look at the rest of Scripture to the virgin birth of Christ, right? That Jesus was born of a virgin, that, that he did not have an earthly father. God was his father. So he was not then created by seed, not by the seed of man. And also remember in Romans chapter 5, uh, the Bible tells us very clearly there, it's through, it's through uh, the lineage of Adam that sin is then passed on from generation to generation to generation, and we inherit our sin from our father. We also find in, Gen in uh, Romans chapter 5 that all that was wiped away through Jesus Christ. Amen. All of that was wiped out through Jesus Christ. So had Jesus had an earthly father, had he been created by the seed of men, he would not then be qualified to be the savior of the world. Why? Because he would have had sin within his life. And it's the wages of sin that, uh, that, that causes death according to the word of God. And Jesus had no sin. He who knew no sin, uh, became sin for us. Not only did he choose not to sin, 
but he was also not born into sin. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us by nature we're children of wrath. That's why you don't have to teach a baby uh, how to be greedy, right? You don't have to teach a baby to say, uh, you know, that's my toy, <laughs> right? That's a, and don't you dare touch it uh, because that's their nature, right? It, it's their very nature. In fact, you have to teach them the opposite, right? You have to teach them the very opposite. So by nature, we're children of wrath. By nature, every single one of us are going to do the wrong thing, right? That's our nature. But praise God, God changes that nature. That nature is passed down through the seed of man, right? They're born into that nature very clearly in Romans chapter 5. And so what we find then in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, it says this, and I'm going to get back into Daniel here in just a minute. I just want to talk about the seed of men. Um, and it says, Now one who is born of God practices sin because his seed uh, uh, his seed abides. Uh, I'm sorry, let me read that correctly. No, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Whose seed abides in him? God's seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice uh, righteousness is not of God, nor the one who uh, does not love his brother. Now, I wish I had more time to get into that verse. That verse is not teaching that anybody that is a Christian will never sin. That is not what that uh, that verse is teaching. Right? In fact, John is talking to Christians right here. Uh, and as John is talking to Christians, uh, he says in chapter 1, he says that anybody says that they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. Right? And so we need to recognize that. We need to hold it all into context and not take one verse and take off and go running with it, right? And say, well, that's clearly what that means. Clearly not what that means. But the point I want to get across is that when we're born of God, how are we born of God? Because His seed abides in us. Amen? And who is His seed? Jesus. Jesus is. Right? And obviously that's not of the flesh, it is by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 8, verse 28 through 29 says this, neither is, uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, literally seed. Right. If, if, if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring or you're Abraham's of Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. OK, so what we find, you know, we, we find it very clearly in the splitting off of the nations in the book of Genesis. Um, you find the uh, you find uh, the, the nations that are. In rebellion against God, you find that seed going one way. And then you find the other seed, the seed of God, that will eventually be of Abraham. Not yet, but will eventually be of Abraham. And then God then using that, those individuals, right? And now in Abraham, ultimately the fulfillment of, of it is in Christ, right? Because of those of you who are in Christ... 
uh, are uh, Abraham's offspring. So it is through, it is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And so when we begin to look at that, uh, he says there's no, there's no Jew and there's no Greek. So he's not talking about nations there. He's not talking about things that are physical, right? He's not talking about there's, there's a good race and a bad race. No, because in Christ, there is no race, <laughs> right? We're all one. And we're all one through the seed of God, which is Jesus Christ. There's, there's not even male or female, right? You're either a born-again believer in Jesus Christ or you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And you know what? The amazing thing is God wants everybody to be in his family, right? Everybody, every single man, woman, child, God wants to be in his family. So when we think about that and begin to understand, the seed of man represents here in Daniel chapter 2, back to Daniel chapter 2, um, the seed of man represents, I believe, fallen humanity, right? And so when you talk about the, the, the empires becoming more and more and more inferior, right? Each one is inferior to the others. You look at where we are in society today, we have greatly advanced technology, we have uh, greatly advanced education, uh, greatly advanced organized, if you want to call it organized, government, <laughs> right? Use that term loosely. But, um, but are we better as a society than they were 2,000 years ago? No. The reason, even 100 years ago, no. Why? Because we are a corrupt people. Amen. We are a corrupt people. Wicked to the core. Amen. And so we see that on display and absolute fulfillment in every... We could point our fingers and say, yeah, this group of people, that group of people, whatever. All humanity, right? Everywhere is absolutely corrupt. And the only thing that can cure that corruption is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then we are no longer of man. We are no longer of the flesh. We are now in Christ. Okay, so I hope that makes, I hope that makes sense um, as I explain that. So it is that seed of man that is going to unite the clay and the iron, according to this text of Scripture right here. Fallen humanity. And so when we look at that, ultimately, when you look in Daniel chapter 7, um, we're going to look at just a minute, but in Daniel chapter 7, it gives a lot more detailed explanation that those ten toes are ten kingdoms, right? But then out of those ten kingdoms is going to come a little horn. That little horn is the Antichrist, and he's ultimately going to rule over all of them. And they're going to allow him to. Why? Because they're a part of him, right? They're, they're of his seed. They're, they're of his kind. And so um, we then go on to verse 44. And in verse 44, then Daniel begins to talk about something that is now totally separated from the statue, right? 
You've got the statue head of gold, arms and chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, feet of uh, clay mixed with iron, and the, the toes. Um, but then totally separate from the statue is this rock carved out or hewed out of the mountain without hands. And so when we look at that, here it is, it's obviously of God. And verse 44 makes it extraordinarily clear who it's from. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will, it will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now, a couple of interesting things that we need to look at. It says there in verse 44, in the days of those kings. So the first question that we have to ask if we're going to answer the question, what kingdom is this that Daniel is now referring to in the days of those kings or actually the timing of which this kingdom is going to come about in the days of those kings. Well, obviously it's not those four empires, right? Because... Those four empires never coexisted. By the time of the Roman Empire, the, uh, the, the Greek Empire, although it had, still had influence, it was not in power anymore, right? The Roman Empire took over the Greek Empire. By the time of the Greek Empire, uh, then the, uh, the, 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 uh, it had taken over um, the, uh, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian, and we see see that in Daniel. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire took over the uh, Babylonian Empire, and so what is he referring to in the days of those kings? Again, he's obviously not referring to the empires, but he's referring to kings plural. Well, we're reminded again um, of what. Those ten toes represent Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. It says right there, and it says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was uh, different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is the Roman Empire, but this empire had ten horns. Now remember, I talked about this last week. The empires, specifically the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire never actually ceased to exist. What happened to it, rather, it just became nationalized. Rather than all of the Roman Empire, you then had Spain, you had France, and you had England, Right? And you had all of these other nations that then be, was more focused on nationalization than a whole empire. Right, And so kings would then come up out of those individual empires. And so that's obviously what happened to the Roman Empire. Again, it wasn't ever conquered. It just became nationalized. Right. And so some would argue that the Roman Empire still exists. Some would argue that the European Union today 
is the revived Roman Empire. Now, it's, I don't think it's lived up to what some folks originally thought it was going to live up to, but it could be, it could be the beginning of that. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24 uh, tells us this. It says, it says, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Okay? So there's the kings right there. You have these ten kings. When is that? It's in the last days. Right? It's in the end days. And so out of that, the ten kings will arise. And when the stone that is carved out without hands, when it comes, what does it target? Look back at Daniel chapter 2 and then look up at verse Twenty uh, verse thirty-four, Daniel chapter two, and verse thirty-four. It says, "You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them." What did it target? Didn't target the legs. Didn't target the midsection. Didn't target the shoulders. Didn't target the head. Right when Daniel stood up before, uh, uh, I'm sorry, David. When David stood up before Goliath, uh, what did he do? Uh, with Goliath, he targeted the head. <laughs> right, he took him out by the head. Well, that's not what this stone did. He took him out by the feet. And when he took him out by the feet, it then ended up destroying the entire uh, the entire statue. Verse 35 says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what did that stone target? Targeted the feet. Took out the feet. And I believe that that feet, specifically those ten toes, which are, according to Daniel chapter 7, ten horns there. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue. Daniel had a vi visions of beasts, right? Specifically, the uh, Roman Empire, the beasts that he saw there, was dreadful and terrifying, Right? And so within that came these ten kings and then one other king, which is ultimately the, uh, the Antichrist. So that's what this kingdom represents. So when it says there in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, in the days of those kings, what are those kings? It's the ten kingdoms, which represents those ten toes right there. So in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Which is interesting. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now as we look at this, the kingdom of God is today, right? It's right now. We're living in the midst of the kingdom of God. Back preaching through Daniel, I'm sorry, Matthew on Sunday mornings and what is all all over Matthew? It's about the kingdom of God, right? And so talked about that this past Sunday morning. All about the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God today? It's spiritual. Right? It's in the heart of man. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. 
But what the Bible makes extraordinarily clear is that there's going to be a physical kingdom. Amen. There is absolutely going to be a physical kingdom. And who's going to set that up? The God of heaven. But what's also interesting is that the God of heaven set up clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the God of heaven set up the Chaldean Empire. Again, Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the, into his hands. God did that, right? God allowed that. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to rise up to power. God is going to allow, uh, or did allow, but in, in Daniel's perspective here, God is going to allow Cyrus the Great to rise up to power. God is going to allow Alexander the Great to rise up to power. And God is going to allow all of these great Caesars in, in the Roman Empire to rise up to power. Right? And so, when we look at this, God did that. And today, we have our different nations. We are citizens of the United States of America. And, you know, when we look at this, God is allowing the United States of America to exist. God's allowing it. Right? At any moment, He could say, and I'm surprised He hasn't done it yet, to be quite honest with you, but at any moment, He could say, I'm tired of you guys, right? And we're done. That's it. We cease to exist because God is the one allowing us to exist. And it's the same with every other nation, right? And He has a purpose for each one, and we don't know why. Why do we have such corrupt, wicked leaders today? I don't know, I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I'm not God. I don't have the answer to that. But what I do know is God has a plan, right? God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is in control. So he allowed the Chaldean Empire. He allowed the Medo-Persian Empire, allowed the Greek Empire, allowed the Roman Empire. And he's going to allow these ten kings that are still yet. That's still future, right? Those ten kings, the, the, these kingdoms might exist today. They might not. I tend to believe they do, <laughs> right? But they might not. We don't we don't know when Jesus is coming back, right? And so we don't know what this world is going to look like entirely when Jesus comes back. And so we could guess, we could speculate. And so when we begin to guess and speculate, you know, a lot of people have always believed that... Uh, the army that rises up that we see in Revelation that rises up out of the east. A lot of people say, well, that's clearly communist China, right? Now a lot of people are saying, well, that's the Muslims uniting as one nation coming together. And that's, that's clearly who that is. Some people still believe it's China. The fact is we don't know. We could guess. We could speculate. We could even have educated guesses. But when all of this is said and done, we don't fully know what the world's going to look like, right? The Bible tells us that when those two witnesses are standing in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel, that the whole world is going to be able to see them. 
50 years ago, people had no idea how that was going to happen. Right? Elvis Presley comes along. You have the first in 1973 in Honolulu, Honolulu, Hawaii. He has a worldwide broadcasted concert that is broadcast through satellite television. First time that's ever happened in 1973. Right? Before that, how could that be? Nobody knew. And then as time went on, then they began to say, okay, now I see it. So some of these things we might not fully see, right? We might not fully know. So we have to be careful about saying, being dogmatic <laughs> about certain things, right? Because the fact is we just don't know. But what's obvious is that we'll be ten end-time kingdoms, right? Ten end-time kingdoms that are pretty confident are going to be... Uh, some of them are, are definitely going to be European. Some of them may even be Asian. So we see that, that Eastern and Western division of the, uh, the Roman Empire. So Turkey could possibly be one of them. You know? But the fact is we don't know. So as we're looking at this, not only did God allow those kingdoms to come to be, he's going to raise up the last kingdom. The final kingdom. He's raising up every other kingdom. And he's going to raise up this kingdom. God's the one who sets kings in place. God is the one who removes those kingdoms. So, the God of heaven who is sovereign allows every other nation to be. He's going to allow this kingdom to be. So he's going to set up in verse verse 44. He will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed the the Medes and Persians wiped out the Chaldeans the Greeks wiped out the Medes and Persians the Romans wiped out the Greeks <laughs> right wiped out their armies anyway and so overcame them overpowered them so this kingdom will never be destroyed And that kingdom will not be left for another people. Nobody's going to come in and plunder the kingdom of God. Right? So when we look at that, what does a kingdom do when they overpower another kingdom? They go in there and plunder them. Right? They'll take their gold. They'll take their silver. Anything that's of any value, they'll take their people. Right? They'll enslave them. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to uh, Judea, he took the choice young men, <laughs> right? Daniel was one of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he took them back to Babylon. He did whatever he wanted to, right? He overpowered their people. But that is clearly not going to happen with the kingdom of God. But then the Bible says something interesting right here. It will crush... And put an end to all of these kingdoms. But it it will itself endure. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms. Right? They're going to be completely wiped out. Now we look today and say, well, we have... Roman influence in our world today as as Americans, right? Of course, we're greatly influenced by Europe. 
And so when we think about that, we have Roman numerals, <laughs> right? We, we have columns and things like that. That, that uh, Where did the columns come from? They have Greek influence, right? And so that Greek influence influenced Roman at uh, Rome, right? Well, Greece was also influenced by the Medes and the Persians, right? And so all of that influence comes along. But when the kingdom of God comes along, it is going to wipe it out. Look at verse 35 again. It says, Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all the same, all at the same time and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors and the winds carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's all that was left. Remember we talked about that stone that became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Talked about that already. That's the kingdom of God. And it's going to fill the whole earth. So the question that we have to ask ourselves. Well when is this going to take place? Is it going to take place at the second coming of Christ? Partly. But not completely. Now remember the description in Daniel chapter 2 is that it's going to be crushed, going to be blown away like shaft, and there's going to be any trace of it left whatsoever. Turn now to Revelation chapter 19. So will this take place? Is this going to take place at the second coming of Jesus? Now remember, when is the second coming of Jesus? The rapture is not the second coming of Jesus. The rapture is going to take place. Christians are going to be taken out of here. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. At the end of that seven years of tribulation, Jesus is going to come down to this earth and step foot on the earth. What happens at the rapture, uh, then we'll meet him in the clouds of glory. Right. So Jesus isn't returning to this earth when the rapture takes place. He's returning to this earth at the end of that seven years of tribulation. What begins immediately after that seven years of tribulation? The 1,000 year millennial reign. But at the second coming of Christ, what we find right here in Revelation chapter 19, um, beginning in uh, verse 15, it says, And from his mouth came a sharp... Now, now here's Jesus. He's riding on the white horse. Right? He's coming back with his host. Uh, but they're not going to be doing any war. Actually, we're not going to be doing any war because we're going to be in that number. Um, but Jesus is going to do that. We see that in verse 15. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp, uh, a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Oh, obviously. That's when that takes place because he's going to strike down the nations. Well, no, not really because we continue to read. It says, And he will rule them. With a rod of iron, and he treads the wine presses of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So is Jesus crushing them to the point to where they are obliterated and no trace of them remains? Well, obviously not if he's ruling them, <laughs> right? If he's ruling them, then they're still there. Now, when Jesus comes back, he sets up his, his reign upon this earth. How's Jesus going to reign? He's going to reign with a rod of iron. 
What's a rod of iron? A rod of iron is a rod of discipline. Uh, you, you, I, I'm the one in charge. You better do what I say or there's consequences. What's he going to need that rod of iron for unless he's ruling over the other nations? And he will be ruling over the other nations. The Bible tells us that very clearly right there. So then what else is going to happen? Look over at chapter 20. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, don't get me wrong about the millennium. The millennium is going to be a great time, especially for the redeemed. Amen. It's going to be a great, great time. The Bible says the lion's going to lay down by the lamb. Child is going to lead the beast of the field. It's going to be like it was in the Garden of Eden. Everything is going to be absolutely perfect. First of all, because Jesus is in charge, right? Secondly, because Satan is bound. He can't be tempting people, right? He can't tempt people. And so when we look at that, how long is it going to take place? That's going to happen for a thousand years. So let's skip down to verse 7. This part always blows me away. It just absolutely blows me away. In verse 7 it says, When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So, at the end of that thousand years, a lot, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They're going to be tempted by Satan, and they're going to try to declare war against Jesus, and they're going to try to declare war against Jesus' people, and what's going to happen to them. In verse 9, they came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. All right? Going to be the shortest war in the history of mankind. <laughs> They're going to rise up and try to come after Jesus and the children of God, and fire is going to come down out of heaven and stop it just as quickly as it started. Now, who are these people? Jesus told us something interesting. Jesus talking about the great tribulation. Jesus said, unless those days be cut short, no one would survive. Tells us two things. Tells us how bad the great tribulation is going to be. Right? But it tells us another thing. People's going to survive the great tribulation. People are going to come through. I believe a lot of people are going to be saved during the tribulation, the first three and a half years. According to Revelation chapter 9, which starts the second three and a half years, which is the great tribulation, then the Bible says nobody's going to repent after that. 
Now, I do believe that's going to be a time when Israel is going to all be saved and come. What's going to happen to them? They're going to go and run and they're going to hide to the hills. And God is somehow going to supernaturally protect them. So obviously they're going to survive, right? But I believe unredeemed people are also going to survive. And at the end of that thousand years of tribulation, I'm, I'm sorry, of millennial reign, then what's going to happen is they're going to be given an opportunity. Are you going to choose Jesus? Are you going to reject Jesus? And what blows me away is they're going to be seeing Jesus for a thousand years. They're going to know him intimately. And as many as the sand of the seashore are still going to reject him. That blows me away. That blows my mind that that's going to happen. But it's going to happen, right? So what happens then is the, uh, they are devoured by the fire that comes out of heaven. Not only are they devoured by the fire that comes out of heaven, I believe that God is going to take all of his children out of here. And then all of the earth is going to be completely destroyed by fire. Peter tells us about that. And in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Okay? So on that new earth, the Bible tells us that that heavenly city of Jerusalem is going to come down, and it's going to rest upon that new earth, and there we're going to enter in there, and we're going to be there Forever and ever and ever and ever. That's when eternity really begins. There, there will be absolutely no trace whatsoever of those old nations and those old kings. Amen. Nothing whatsoever. The millennium is going to be good. It's going to be great. Especially if you're a child of God. Right? But it's not yet eternity. And eternity doesn't start until then. So I believe the second coming of Jesus starts it. Right? Starts it. But it's not going to be completed until ultimately when uh, this earth is destroyed by fire and everything is done away with and there's a new heaven. And then there is a new earth. I hope that makes sense to you. Um, I know that can get a little confusing, <laughs> especially when I'm throwing a whole lot at you at one time. Um, any questions or comments about?